came across an interesting story this week. There was a, um, a woman uh, who was taking her mother to the doctor. Uh, and uh, they were going down the road, and uh, this, this mother and her adult daughter driving to the doctor. And they get to the doctor, they pull into the parking lot, and uh, they go, the mother opens her door, but she's been sick now for a while, and she's going to the doctor to figure out what the problem is. Uh, she's been weak and, and um, uh, just not feeling right, and uh, she opens her door to get out of the car, and she can't lift herself up out of the seat. She's feeling as though she's too weak to get out of the seat, and it's a new feeling. I mean, when she got in, she didn't feel like she, she was this weak, but somewhere between driving from home to the doctor, uh, the weakness just seemed to grow and intensify to where she got there, and uh, at first, she began to complain about her daughter's car. She thought it was her daughter's car was too low to the ground, and she just couldn't get out. And she was complaining about her daughter's car and uh, frustrated that her daughter bought such a terrible, terrible car with low seats, not thinking about her mother's feelings. And uh, I mean, I know none of you have family members like that, but this, this was a situation in this family. <laughs> and, uh, and the daughter just took it, and the mother uh, you know, said, I, I just can't get out of the seat. And the daughter finally said, okay, I'm going to come help you because you can't do it, so I, you know, I'm stronger, I'm, gonna, I'm younger, I can come help you. So the daughter comes around to the mother's side of the car and uh, grabs the mother from under the arms, and they go, one, two, three, and they're going to lift. So one, two, three, and they're trying to pull her out, and she just falls back in the seat. The daughter says, okay, I thought I was stronger than this. Um, she says, I haven't feel, been feeling that great lately, but, but surely I can help you get out of the seat in the car. And so she puts her arms, her hands under the mom's arms again, and she goes, okay, here we go again. One, two, three, and tries to pull, and the daughter falls back in the seat, and, and the, mother, or the mother falls back in the seat, and the daughter's standing there. She kneels down in the parking lot there, and she says, you know, like I said, I haven't been feeling that great, and now I'm feeling weak. Kind of maybe I've gotten what you've God, and now we can't even get into the doctor to see what we've got. Everything is just getting worse. We, we are going to die right here in the parking lot of the doctor's office. You in the car seat, and now the daughter is sitting on the ground, and they're both weeping. What are our families going to do without us? They're not even going to know where we are. We're here in the parking lot of the doctor. Come and find us, please, somebody. And they're both just crying there. Uh, you know, they went to the worst possible, you know, the worst case scenario. I know none of you do that, but that's what they were doing. And every, they're just going to die and rot there in the doctor's parking lot. And, uh, and then, so they're crying. And then all of a sudden, the mother stops and looks at her daughter and unbuckles her seatbelt. <laughs> and they go into the doctor, and turns out the mother just had a cold and uh, forgot to unbuckle her seatbelt to get out of the car. You know, a lot of times, <laughs> there's an easy answer when there's an uncertain problem that we can't see and don't anticipate because we're focused on other things. And we immediately go to the worst possible thing that could it be. We are going to die. It's going to happen this way and this way. We're going to end up in a ditch and, and we're dead. I mean, it's just the way it's going to be. It's just the end of the scenario is always we're in a ditch and we're dead. And uh, we just go to the worst possible scenario after blaming somebody else, after, like the daughter, thinking we could control the situation and we have, if I put my own hands on the situation, I can control it better than the person who is. And then we just go to the worst possible scenario when in reality there may have been an easy fix all along. We just couldn't see it because of where our perspective was. Well, we're going to see something unique today, similar uh, to, to that interesting story. Um, uh, turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 43. 
Genesis 43. Uh, if you are going to use a Bible on the pew rack there in front of you, it's on page 36, uh, right at the beginning. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. That is your Bible. Take it. It's a gift. Uh, write your name on it in one of those little golf pencils in front of you. Uh, take that Bible home. Uh, Genesis chapter 43. It'll also be on the screens if you're, uh, you know, you just don't want to get the Bible out of the rack or you're watching online. Uh, Genesis chapter 43. We've been going through the life of Joseph these last few weeks uh, in the book of Genesis. You see, Joseph uh, was a teenager. Uh, he was 17 when he was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Um, I know that some of you may have sibling rivalry when you uh, sibling rivalry when you were growing up, or maybe it's going on in your house now and you're a parent, you don't know how to deal with it. But I doubt it was to this point where the siblings who were murderers, some of them, talked about killing their brother, and it wasn't just a figure of speech. They were saying they were going to kill him. And uh, instead of killing him, the reasonable one spoke up and said, no, let's just sell him into slavery and then the slave masters will kill him and uh, his blood won't be on our hands. And so they sold him into slavery. Joseph gets shipped off to uh, uh, Egypt, which was known as a very harsh place, a very difficult place. And remember, he's 17. He's never left daddy's house. And now he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And he goes down there, and he's serving in uh, this one guy's house, and he gets accused of something because he wouldn't do the thing he's being accused of. And because he gets accused of this, he gets thrown into prison. And he's thrown into prison, and he's left there and forgotten. For years, he's left there and forgotten. But because of how God has uniquely gifted him, he is brought out of prison to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, a vision that Pharaoh has. And Joseph interprets the dream. Joseph tells Pharaoh, you're going to have seven great years of crops. The economy is going to be amazing. And then you're going to have seven years that are terrible, like worse than anything you've ever thought of. And so Joseph said, what you need to do is for those seven years that are great, you need to collect as much as you can. Save as much as you can for those seven years that are going to be bad. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. You're in charge of the project. And so Pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison, makes him second in, in command of all of Egypt in charge of this you know, collecting and then distributing, uh, distributing process. And so Joseph is there, and he's in charge. And uh, they go through all this time. Uh, seven years of, of good years, Joseph collects. And then the bad years start. You know, year one comes, and it's bad. And year, year two comes, and it's really bad. And so at this point, Joseph's been second in command of all Egypt now for nine years. Joseph has been away from home for a very long time. He's 39 now. He left home. He was sold into slavery when he was 17. Now he's 39. It's been 22 years. He's been away from home longer than he was alive at home. A lot has changed. Were any of you different when you were 39 than when you were 17? Any of you? Anybody? If you were the same, we need to know what's going on with you. <laughs> but he was he a was different person. Different, he, he looked vastly different. You see, because where his family was from, it was common to grow your hair out, grow really long beards. But down in Egypt, to have authority and to show who you were, you shaved everything. You had no hair on your head whatsoever. And so to be, I mean, when Joseph was brought out of prison... In order to be able to see Pharaoh, they had to shave his entire head. He couldn't have any hair on his head. And so from that point forward, now for nine years, he's had no hair. And so he's like, not only looks very different from 39, from when he was 17, but he's, his experiences has, have shaped who he is. And so now here he is, 39. Famine's been going on for two years. And here in, in Genesis chapter 43, 
we're going to get a glimpse at what was going on back home, at what has been going on back home during this period of time. So Genesis chapter 43, let's start in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, severe. So the famine wasn't just in Egypt. It wasn't just in Egypt, it was also back where Joseph's brothers lived, where Joseph's family was. You see, Joseph's family had already been to visit Joseph. They didn't recognize him. They bought grain from him. But then Joseph sneakily put the money that they had paid for their grain back in their sacks. So they would assume things were very bad. They would assume it was some sort of you know, bureaucratic mistake that got the money back in the bags. But now if they came back to buy money they would think, or to buy grain, they, would, they thought the Egyptians would think they stole it and they'd be executed. Because what ended up happening is Joseph confronted them and acted like they were spies and took one of their brothers and put him in prison. And so one of their brothers, Simeon, he's the second oldest. Simeon was one of the murderous brothers, one of the guys who did. He killed dozens and dozens of people. He was locked away in the Egyptian prison. No idea Joseph was in charge of Egypt. No idea Joseph was still alive. They assumed selling Joseph into slavery meant Joseph was going to die. And so Simeon's in jail, Joseph's in charge, the brothers are back home, and it says the salmon is severe, or the salmon, maybe they were having severe salmon, maybe. Man, if you had some severe salmon, you got some issues for a few days. Uh, the famine was severe, uh, and uh, they're there at home, and we get a, real, a look into their lives that life is hard, and the difficulty they're facing in life really has no end in sight. You ever been there? having a difficulty, and there's no end in sight. You see, they were already two years into the famine. They had no idea that there were still five years left. It was going to last far longer than what they anticipated. It was going to be far worse than they ever thought it possibly could be. And so now they're back home. Simeon's in prison. They assume Joseph is dead, and they've got this cloud of, of uncertainty hanging over them as they're back home. Uh, look at verse 2. When they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, now Judah, Judah's the fourth born, okay? And it matters a little bit today, but back then, birth order mattered extremely. It was everything to them. And so Judah's the, first, the fourth born, and he's about to speak up. Now, what makes this very interesting is when they first, when the brothers first got back from Egypt, having bought grain, left Simeon in prison, when they first got back, they told their father, their father who believes Joseph is dead, who suffered through all of that, Joseph was his favorite son. He believed Joseph was dead, and now his brothers come back and say, well, we're coming back without a brother again. Simeon's in prison, and so being in an Egyptian prison, they're going to assume, well, he's as good as dead. He may be already dead now. And they say, well, the man who spoke to us and, and arrested Simeon told us that we can't come back and buy grain unless the other brother comes back with us, the one we left, your other favorite, Benjamin. You see, Benjamin was Joseph's full-blood brother, his only other full-blood brother. Uh, he was um, 10 years younger than Joseph. And they said, we, can't, we cannot go back unless we take him with us because he won't allow us to buy anything, because he won't believe us unless we bring him back with us and J Jacob at the time had told them Jacob the father had told his sons well you're not taking Benjamin at all 
I sent Joseph to you one time and you came back without him telling me he's dead. I sent Simeon with you guys down there to buy grain. And you come back without him and tell me he's in Egyptian prison. He's dead. I'm not sending one more of my sons with you guys. And so Reuben was the one who, sp who spoke up and Jacob was the one who told this to Reuben. You are not taking any more of my kids. And so now Reuben has kind of been, has kind of lost his authority as the oldest son, as the firstborn. And now Judah is the one who speaks up. And so this is what Judah says. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah presents the story Jacob already knows. This no-win scenario. We can stay here and starve, or we can go down to Egypt, where they're going to assume we're a bunch of thieves, and they're going to kill us all. So either we can die here of starvation, or we can go down there and be beheaded. Which is, better, which is a better situation? It's all bad. And this is what Judah speaks to his father, Jacob, who was also called Israel. Look at verse 6. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? So Jacob, Israel, questions the decision-making processes of his sons. Why did you make that decision? That is a terrible decision you made when you went down there and you told him you had another brother. Why did you say that? Why? That makes no, you should not, you should have kept your mouth shut. See, it's easy for Jacob sitting in his home to question the decisions of his sons. He wasn't there. Jacob wasn't there. Jacob didn't go with them. Jacob didn't make the decision, but he questioned their decision. And so he's got this uncertainty now of, of what's going to happen. Are we going to die here? Are we going to die there? We don't know what's in the world's going to happen. Simeon's dead, just like Joseph is dead. You want to take Benjamin down there and all of you die? How is this going to play out here? I don't know what's going to happen. And so the first possible response from this situation, the life of Jacob, the life of Israel, to uncertainty is to blame someone else's decisions. Or to blame someone else is what we would assume would be poor decisions. Jacob questions his sons. He blames their decisions. You told them you had a brother. It's your fault that you're going to take Benjamin down there and get him killed, just like you got Joseph killed. It's your fault. Even though Jacob wasn't in their shoes. Even though Jacob wasn't in their role. Jacob sent them down there to do something. They got back. And he questioned how they did the thing that he did not go and do at all. He stayed home. He's got no business questioning their decision-making. It may not have been the best decision, but they didn't know at the time what Joseph was going to do to him. They had no idea of knowing that Joseph was going to use that information to lock up one of their brothers and treat them so poorly. But Israel still questions their decisions, questions how they make their decisions. You see, when we question somebody's decision and we blame their decisions for a scenario that we had no part in making, what we're really doing is we're communicating to that person that we think we are better than them. We think we are smarter than them. We think we are wiser than them. In short, it's really incredibly prideful to assume I would make a different decision in a role I was never called to. Anybody ever question? Don't raise your hand. 
You ever think your spouse makes a dumb decision? Do not raise your hand. Do not. That's a dumb decision. Right there. For real. I'm going to just lay it out for you. You ever think your kids make a dumb decision? I'm not saying they don't. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying, do you ever think it? That's just terrible. That is terrible. You ever think somebody else in this room has ever made a terrible decision? You ever think somebody else? You ever think the coach of your favorite NFL team makes a terrible decision? Amen. (laughs) But I was not called to that role. I wasn't. Jerry Jones didn't call me up and say, hey, I need you to be the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not saying I would jump at that chance. But he didn't call me. God didn't say, that's your job. He didn't give me that role. In the same respect, God didn't give me the role of my wife. God gave her that role. And who am I to say, I cannot believe you would say that or do that or make that decision. That's not my role. That doesn't mean we can't talk about stuff. That doesn't mean we can't have a rational conversation. But when we start throwing questions around, like like what Israel, Jacob, is throwing around to his sons, why would you do that? That comes from a bad place of motivation. That, That comes from a place of, that is a terrible decision, and you have no idea what you're doing. That comes from a place of degradation. That comes from a place of tearing them down. When you throw, especially that why question, why would you make that decision? That's not where you start from. If you start with that in your head, you need to realign how you're thinking and get to a better place of thinking. Because when a situation of uncertainty arises and our instinct, our instinct is to blame somebody else's decision, then we're in a wrong headspace. That's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to blame other people. He wants us to blame other people's situations. Because if we're so busy blaming other people, we're not seeing what God wants us to see in the moment. We blame other people all the time for all kinds of things. Man, you have no idea what my boss is like. Man, you got no idea. Some of your teachers were working in administration. You have no idea what these parents are like. Oh, my goodness. You will not believe the phone call I got today. That email I got, you will not believe the decision this person made. It is bonehead is the only, I mean, it is bad. I saw what that person posted on Facebook. If I, I would never have typed that in and hit submit ever. And so you've never made a bad decision in your life. Anybody ever made a bad decision? Anybody sitting on the road with somebody who's made a bad decision? Mm-hmm. Shh. <laughs> One of you went like this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If you listen to the podcast, you've got to go back and watch this on YouTube. It's funny. Um, we always think we know better than somebody else, always. That's just the way we're wired. But going around, throwing around questions like, why would you do that is... is is all kinds of prideful and insulting and not who God wants us to be as followers of Jesus. It's not loving. It's not loving. We need to support each other and hold each other up. If it was a bad decision, we can talk about it, but not in a way that tears each other down because that's not what Jesus would have us do. Do you think when 
when, uh, uh, what, what did Jesus do after Peter denied him three times? Can we all agree that was a bad decision? Yes? That was a bad decision. Next time Jesus talked to Peter one-on-one, what did Jesus say? Peter, why did you do that? That was terrible, Peter. You are a bad person, Peter. That's not what he said. He, he asked him three questions and gave him three instructions. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. He gave him a job. Basically, an assignment that he would fulfill in Acts chapter 2 when he preached and thousands of people came, were saved. Jesus was giving the authority to the guy who denied him three times to be in charge. He was not the first pick for any of us, if that were us. Jesus didn't throw that out. Why did you do that, Peter? Seems why it happened. I mean, the, the question, the answer is there. But Jesus cared for the individual more than he cared about tearing that person down. Because he didn't want to tear anybody down. He wants to draw everybody to himself and show them the way forward. In love. In love. And so Israel, though, Jacob, blames his sons. Why did, you, why did you do that? That was a terrible decision. And tears them down. Look at verse 7. So again, the sons speak up, and then Judah is going to begin to be the leader among his brothers. So they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves, and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not delayed, we, will, we would now have returned twice. What's interesting about what Judah says here, the fourth son, he offered to bear responsibility. But when they first got back and told the story to their father, Reuben offered to bear responsibility. If we go back, I will take care of it. But the father didn't trust Reuben. So whatever happened right now in Judah speaking up, maybe the timing was right. It's been a few, it's been a little while. They're really hungry. Or, or, or maybe Judah was just more trustworthy than Reuben was. The father's going to trust Judah in just a moment. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So this is interesting. You know, I, I, in reading this many, many times, there's not a whole lot of attention that's paid to this, but it almost seems as though Israel, Jacob, is saying, take as much good stuff as you can down there and give it to that one guy as a bribe. Let's, let's grease his palms a little bit. Let's send him all the, all the food we have collected we haven't eaten yet. 
empty the pantry, put it on a cart, take double the money, take your money he gave you last time, and take it all down there and give it to him. Let's just give him everything. Let's empty the bank account. Let's, uh, uh, let's just bribe him as best we can. Because Jacob, Israel, second response here, he's trying to control the situation as best he can. And so another response to uncertainty, response number two, exercise as much control as you can. He said, maybe we can, we, can, we can turn the man's opinion. We can manipulate his emotions if, if we bribe him with everything we've got. Maybe we can work that out. If this is the only possible way out of this thing is to take Benjamin down there with you, fine. Let's send all the money we have, all the food we have, take all the good stuff we have, even the pistachios you're saving in the back of the pantry for yourself for a special day. Take it all. And let's see if we can make him think, you know, things are good. You see, because sometimes we try to exercise as much control as we can and keep things in our own hands because what we're really thinking is my hands are the only capable ones. I am the only one who knows how to best handle this. So I'm going to control this. Jacob doesn't trust his sons. He doesn't trust what they're going to say. He doesn't trust what's coming out of their mouth. He just blamed what came out of their mouth. And so he's trying to come up with a scenario of how to make this possibly be a win. And so Jacob is coming up with, with a scheme, which is what he's good at from his younger days. Scheming of how to manipulate this man and buy his favor. You see, when we try to exercise control, it's saying that I know better than everybody else. I know the best possible way for this to play out. And if only everybody on the planet would do what I tell them to do, everybody would be happier. Anybody ever think that way? Maybe you don't think that way. Anybody ever act that way? If only this person would just do what I tell them to do or do what I want them to do, and you think, do what I want, do what I want, do what I want. And then they don't do what you want. It makes you even matter, even though they didn't know what you wanted in the first place. I almost ask, anybody know anybody who, who likes to control situations? You may be sitting next to them. Don't do that. Some of us, we, we like to control and have control over as much as we possibly can. Because, honestly, we struggle with faith. Trusting that God will take care of the scenario. That God will take care of the situation. He does want us to act and he does want us to control some things under his direction and his guidance. But what we do when we try to control everything is we're wrestling control away from God. The only one who knows the best way for a situation to play out. And so Jacob doesn't trust his sons. Honestly, Jacob... Have you ever read the Old Testament and you hear about the greatness of God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Does Jacob pray before he makes this decision? No. Does Jacob ask God if this is the best way to do this, to go about getting Simeon back and getting food? No, he didn't pray. He just makes this decision on his own, this plan, this conniving, scheming strategy on his own. He does not consult God. And what his actions tell us are, he doesn't trust God. Just like he doesn't trust his sons. And so he tries to come up with the best scenario. Tries to control the scenario as best he can. And look at what he, does, he says next. Verse uh, 13. 
Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And now he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. So, may God bless the plan I came up with. He doesn't say, God, do you want this plan to happen? May God bless the plan that I am sending you out with. God bless the plan I came up with, instead of consulting and seeing what God wanted him to do. So may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So if all of you die, then you're all dead. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So what's the third response to uncertain situations? Believe the worst possible outcome. And if all of you die, then that's it. You're all dead. I've just lost all of my sons. But you notice too in what he said. He said, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. He didn't say may God send all the rest of you back too. He says, may God bring Simeon back to me, who's been in prison, and Benjamin, who is now my favorite. But if you all lose your heads, then I just have to deal with it. He goes immediately to the worst possible scenario. You're all dead. And now I am stuck, Jacob, 100-year-old man, raising all of your children. He believes the worst possible outcome. He, this is all doom and gloom. If you've ever been doom and gloom in your life, it, you know, it, it, it's, some of you have said to me, I'm just being real. This is just reality. I'm just being real with the situation. I've got to anticipate what's coming just in case it comes. But where is the Lord in that kind of thinking? Where is the hope in that kind of thinking? Where is the joy? Where is the love in that kind of thinking? Because in reality, there's no joy in that kind of thinking. There's no hope in that kind of thinking. And so if there's no joy and there's no hope, there's no Jesus in that kind of thinking. You see, Jacob here, he's hopeless. He's in great turmoil. He has no peace at all. He's lost Joseph, lost Simeon. He's anticipating losing all of his children. He has no peace. But really, what his response so far, they have been... He blames somebody else, he tries to control, and then he believes the worst possible outcome. But there's one thing he has not done, and that's the reason he has no peace. And that's the fourth, uh, possible, or that's the fourth response to uncertain situations. And the reason he, he has no peace is because he has not trusted the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 26. It's going to be on the screens, or if you're a Bible driller, you can flip there quick. Isaiah 26. This is speaking to God. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Tony, jump back to verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, perfect peace. Peace. Has anybody ever experienced peace before in your life at any time? Ever? Would you say it was perfect peace? Perfect peace is something. I mean, it's like perfect peace is, is un, 
uninterrupted, undisruptible peace. He says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Now, if if we don't have perfect peace, that means our mind is not on the Lord. And if our mind's not on the Lord, what's it on? A whole wide variety of stuff. I mean, we've seen that in Jacob's life, right? I mean, his mind was on the bad decisions of his sons. His mind was on how he can control the situation. His mind was on the worst possible outcome. His mind was not on the Lord at all. That's why he didn't consult the Lord. That's why he wanted the Lord to bless his own plan that he devised himself. His mind was not on the Lord. Because why? Into that verse. He did not trust God here. Yeah, his life's been rough, and he's been beaten down because of situations that have happened to him. But he doesn't have peace because his mind's not on the Lord. His mind is not on the Lord. Jacob didn't keep his mind on the Lord because he didn't trust him. And so the fourth response to uncertainty, trust the Lord. Trust him without question, without hesitation. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to the point of of Jesus' own words in, in the Lord's prayer that we have undoubtedly all said without taking full meaning of the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. You ever live that way? I mean, think about those words. Give me today my daily bread. Not the stuff I saved up for yesterday so I could go to Walmart today. Give me only today what I need today. It's the idea of the Israelites going into uh, uh, the wilderness and trusting that God would provide the manna and the quail every single day. They had to trust God for their food because they couldn't get food on their own. They had to trust God for their needs that day. Give us this day our daily. What I need today can only come from God, so I have to trust him for it today. If Jacob would have trusted God here, he would have had more faith. You see, we've seen seen the life of Joseph as as he was sold into slavery, as, as he served as a slave, then he was falsely accused, then he was in prison. All throughout that time, Joseph trusted the Lord. That didn't mean he was perfect. He still had his own flaws. We've seen that in how he treated his brothers. But Joseph trusted the Lord in the midst of all those circumstances, the betrayal, the slavery, the the prison, the false accusations. He still trusted the Lord, and God provided peace in the midst of terrible circumstances. God can do that. Because I don't know if you knew this, but God made your body. He made your brain, he made your heart, he made your stomach. He knows how anxiety arises and worry comes. And so he can provide the relief that you can on your own in incredible ways. In incredible, you, sometimes we do try to muscle through it. Like if I just push through it or if, if, I, just, if I just distract myself enough, then I, I don't have to think about it. But what God can do is he can provide peace in the midst of it. Right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of the terrible, right in the middle of it, because what are those verses in Isaiah? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That doesn't say you keep him in perfect peace whose life is awesome. You keep him in perfect peace who's got a full bank account. You keep him in perfect peace whose all family members are completely and perfectly healthy. You keep him in perfect peace who's got no problems whatsoever on this planet. No, he says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Even when things get bad, even when so-and-so said such-and-such about you, even when that family member calls you with that report that was terrible, even when you got a test coming up that you don't know what the outcome is going to be, even when 
Things are, are not how you anticipated they would be at this stage in your life. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Is stayed on, is stayed, remaining, completely focused and, and, and there with you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You trust the Lord. But what is trust? Trust in the Lord is confidence in his goodness and his love. Trust in the Lord is absolute confidence in his goodness and his love. God is all good. God is all loving. And so trust is confidence that God can never be not good. God can never be not loving. They're a part of his nature. He's always good. He's always loving. And so that's what trust is. I trust that the Lord is all good. I trust that the Lord is all loving. I don't know how this situation is going to play out. It's very uncertain. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what's about to hit me. I, I, I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know what life is going to be like in a week because of what's coming. But I trust that the Lord is good. And I trust that the Lord is love. And so because he lives, I can face tomorrow. If I trust in the Lord, we can find peace in uncertainty. And so if you examine your life right now in this moment, what is it that you have that you need to trust to the Lord? What is it? Think about it. What do you have right now that you need to trust to the Lord? Is it something that's been hanging over you maybe for a year and a half? Maybe something that developed last week? Maybe it's a worry you have about a family member. Maybe it's a worry you have about your job. Maybe it's a worry you have about what somebody thinks. Maybe it's an anxiety you didn't even realize was there, but it's been slowly creeping up over time, and now it's become a scream in your ear, and you don't know what to do. And you're afraid to even say it out loud to the person you trust the most. Because if you speak it, you're afraid it's going to become more real. What is the thing that you need to trust the Lord with? Trust him. Trust him. More than blaming somebody else's decisions, more than trying to control the situation. Trust him. More than trying to, to believe the worst possible outcome. Trust him. Because he's all good and he's all loving. Maybe today you need to trust him for the first time. You need to trust him for the first time. Stop trying to do life on your own. That's not the way you were designed. You need to trust him for the first time and believe that he sent his son Jesus to come and die for you. To die so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Even the stuff you haven't said yet. Even the stuff in the back of your mind. Even, even the stuff that you have to go to court for. He's forgiven every, even the stuff you're going to do in two years. Already forgiven. If you believe in Jesus, already forgiven if you believe in Jesus. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. If you believe, if you trust in Jesus, then you gain not only eternal life, you gain access, opportunity for this perfect peace that he offers. Will you trust him today? You know, in, in, in what the New, New, the New Testament is written in Greek, and in the Greek, the word believe and trust, they're the exact same word. 
Belief is trust. Trust is belief. Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you trust Jesus today for the first time? Or will you take that thing that you've been carrying and unload it because his burden is light and he will give you rest? You know, we have a sermon series coming up in a, in a few weeks. We're going to talk about the pace of Jesus and how Jesus was always calm and Jesus always had peace. He, and Jesus did more in, in two and a half, three years than, than any of us could do in a lifetime. And we're going to see how Jesus accomplished that, always walking and never running. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus in that way. But here is Jesus it, it presenting that, carrying literally the weight of the world on his shoulders, but still demonstrating phenomenal peace. Will you embrace his peace today? Will you trust him today, whether for the first time or surrendering that one thing that you've been hanging on to and find perfect peace?